0: Hi, everybody. I'm Al, and I'm an Al-Nine, and I'm scared to death. I wish I didn't get... I've been around a long time, and I still get scared to death when I get up here, and I don't know why. Um, I have actually... A lot has happened to me over the last couple of years. Over the last year, a lot has happened to me, and um hope I'll get a chance to talk with you a little bit about that, but I really have gotten to a point in my recovery, and it's, it really... Um, you know, I don't like telling you this, but... I've been around a long, long time, and I feel like I've gotten to the point, just in the last year or so, where I'm beginning to feel that deep sense of serenity that a lot of people get a lot earlier in their life. Um, my outline life has been through several stages, and I'll talk with you a little bit about that, but it's been just an overwhelming experience to come back here, because I guess the theme of my life the last year has been like completing circles. There are a lot of things. You know, I, when I passed 50, maybe I started thinking about these things more. I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm, uh, you know, I'm getting a little gray hair and things that are just, uh, I feel, you know, I'm just not the person you see in this old body. You know, I'm a allotene at heart, and I hope I stay that way. Just getting getting older thing has just not sat well with me, but I've become a little bit more inter- introspective. Uh, I, I guess it had something to do with that uh, with that age, and I've started thinking about uh, some of the things that have come around in circles. Like Barbara talked about, Dick and I had paths that crossed um, 25 years ago. And it's a spiritual experience to be here in an environment where I get a chance to meet Dick again. I met him in in Minneapolis, and that was another experience. Everything that led up to the experience that she talked about, that treatment program where I was, uh, was a spiritual experience, a chain of events that's just unbelievable. I won't even have... If I got into that, I'll maybe talk a little bit about that because it's important. in my my development in Al-Anon, but even if I got into that, it'd just be too much to talk about. It's just so much has happened in an unbelievable way. And Al-Anon has prepared me to see the things that are happening in an unbelievable way, because I think a lot of things happen that we miss. I watched alcoholics be drunk over and over and miss those opportunities for spiritual growth and learning. But um, I guess, I think I'm coming to grips now with how we in Al-Anon miss those too. Even if we're completely sober, often our minds are not receptive to some of the spiritual growth. Because in AA, you're really lucky. You've got a benchmark of recovery. You've got a way to, you know, when that last chemical was, um, pill or drink or whatever. And often people's AA lives and stories are kind of dated from that time. In Al-Anon, we don't have that luxury. You know, you can go to an Al-Anon group and you don't know who to listen to and who not to. Because in AA, if you know, if you're not making a lot of sense for long enough, you get drunk and you're out of the meetings for a while. But in Al-Anon, we, you know, we have all those same people there, no matter how we're we're doing. And that, I think that's um, an advantage <laughs> and a disadvantage. Um, I've heard, because I learned a lot from some of the screwy thinking around AA and Al-Anon. Um, but you know, in AA, you have to get kind of get hit overhead because alcohol's an anesthetic, and people have to, you know, have to use a sledgehammer to get through. And then we don't use sledgehammers in Al-Anon. We have to use like feathers and things, you know, because we're pretty sensitive. And I'm one of those sensitive people too. And Al-Anon has helped me uh, somehow get a little bit more stable with my emotions rather than uh, you have to penetrate all the, the fog of, um, of the addiction. But, and I was going to, I usually don't talk much about my ality life. I date my recovery in Al-Anon to, to um, the time I was in Louisville in 1975 when I joined Al-Anon, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. But really, um, Al- alatine was really important to me. My folks came in the program in 1959, and I was 11 years old. And I was too young for Alatine. They were talking about Alatine in 1959, but it didn't really matter because I was too young to go. You had to be a teenager. And I remember waiting in anticipation of when, I could, when we could have alatine. There was no Alateen in Statesboro. We had heard in 1961 there was an Al- Alatine meeting in Savannah. And I was not really clear on those dates until Barbara, uh, bless her heart, got all this stuff from the uh, World Service Archives and put those things out and started looking at it. And lo and behold, I figured out it was like 1961 because I had turned 13 in in September of 1961. And sure enough, she has, and and I remember um, one of the, um, I guess you'd call it a date. I was 13. There was a girl who was like the other member of the Alton group. (laughs) We didn't know what it was all about, but her dad drove us to Savannah to go to an LT meeting. I remember walking upstairs, going to that LT meeting, and not really knowing what it was all about. They didn't have any literature. We found out later that there was a place that you could get literature from, and lo and behold, when I looked through the archives, there's the order blank. Uh, you can go in there and look at it, but it's got all the... Dece- December 1961, it's got all the pamphlets... That were ordered from my dad's office. He was like the secretary of the AA group. Uh, I guess every, a lot of things came through his office. The, they were holding meetings in a lawyer's office across the street, and our LT meeting in his uh, medical office. But there's an order blank that uh, was the order for our first literature shipment was was placed. And I remember going to those meetings and and learning uh, the first things that the program was teaching me uh, in a way that. I could hear it. i would heard a lot about AA that I'll tell you about because AA has been a very important part of my life and my recovery too. But I learned that there were other people that had a problem like we had in our family. I also learned that I could love my parents but hate the disease that they had and it allowed me to separate the two out and um, that was really, really important but not because I felt so hurt. I had a wonderful childhood. I don't I didn't have any abuse in my family until my folks got sober, and that's when the abuse thing seemed to start. <laughs> it took, We had a long adjustment in recovery in our family, so I'm glad we didn't have ADDs and by diagnoses and Prozacs and everything back then because we'd have been uh, characterized as a really nutty family, I'm sure. Um, Ten years, I remember a lot of ups and downs and um, a lot of... Things that today probably would not have been seen as a part of recovery, but thank God we didn't have some of the technology and chemistry that we have today. And our family has found a recovery through the principles of this program, and it has been um, uh, it has been rewarding not just for me, but now my kids are adults, and and it um, awes me as to what they've learned by kind of a process of osmosis. Os- osmosis. So over three generations now, I can talk about this recovery, and it's it's really a um, an amazing experience, but. We didn't know what this Alateen thing was all about. We had um, a few friends who, once we got some literature and started having our meetings, a few other friends collected. And then I remember, and there was no such thing as anonymity. Everybody knew my dad was a doctor. He was very proud of his recovery. And um, we would do things to, I remember well, a couple of things. I remember my dad talked in, this was a little later. This was in 1963, 62, I guess. He talked to my high school class. I was in ninth grade in Statesboro High School. I remember sitting from the balcony, as you, and I remember where it was because as you progressed to, the, to be a senior, you got to move up closer and closer to the front, and I was the first class in the high school, so I sat in the balcony, and I remember looking at the balcony, and he told his AA story to everybody in that, um, in that high school class. He had probably delivered a third of the kids in the class, and they all knew him as Dr. John, and, and, uh, and when he got up and told his story, I, was, I didn't know how to feel. I was uh, confused and a little embarrassed but I'm so glad that there was no anonymity except at the level of press, radio, films, and TV with my folks, because uh, for years, I mean, as late as literally two months ago, somebody from that class came in, this was years and years ago, but as late as two months ago, somebody from that class came in uh, to recovery, and it, it had something to do with being in that, in that class and learning that you don't have to be ashamed if you've got a drinking problem or a drug problem, and also that there is help and there's hope uh, if you have this disease in your family. The first part of my my memories, though, were confusion. Like I say, there wasn't a lot of violence and a lot of... And I don't have a lot of glitzy, glamorous stories. I'll tell you a few of my stories and they'll just bore you to death. But um, you probably... You know, that's part of my story, so I'll tell them. But, um, but you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of glitz and glamour like you hear in a lot of other, other talks. Um, but there was a lot of emotion in my story, in my life, and a lot of confusion. I was in that characteristic role of the oldest child in an alcoholic family. I was the family hero. When things were coming apart in the family, um, I didn't know what was happening. I learned later about all these roles that kids take on and our family just fit them perfectly. Long time before anybody ever invented the roles or ever decided what they were, but I was the family hero. You know, when things were going bad, I remember I was the one that was, you know, kind of there. Not that anybody told me to, but, you know, I was there to kind of pick up the pieces. I remember um, help my mom get up in the morning at times and i remember when my dad was off in uh, in prison uh, i was you know I, I would help um you know help get um get my brothers and sisters you know awake and ready to go to school i remember when I, my dad came back and my mom was um go doing some of her psychiatric uh uh drug stuff having helped my dad make breakfast. I mean, you know, this this guy could not make breakfast. Uh, he was, I, I remember, you know, I don't, I have a few vivid memories of these times and how, how uh, screwy they were, but one thing that I do remember, I, I this is what made me decide that I needed to help fix breakfast, is that he made us hot chocolate one morning. I'll never forget this image, and he figured if you took some water and this old Hershey's cocoa, you know, you put in water and it bubbles up in a lot of dust. Um, I remember that was his hot chocolate one morning. I remember trying to eat that. with. I don't think it had any sugar in it. It just had water, and we just, but, and it didn't, my brothers and sisters weren't as old as I was, but they figured out too that Daddy didn't know how to make breakfast, so we kind of handled things uh, after that. Um, things were confusing though because they just they just didn't make sense. And when you're that age, when you're a kid, you put your parents up on a pedestal. And so if things are not right, um, like a lot of kids do, I began to to believe there's something wrong with my interpretation of the facts. And so a a child in an alcoholic family takes on a lot of the the guilt and the feelings and the and the, the the scars that come from alcoholism particularly when the alcoholics are kind of anesthetized to the to life anyways and i remember a few of those were um were things that still stick in my mind some of them have had some permanent impl- uh, implications but i remember one night for example you know it's it's normal to have arguments in family i've argued with my wife and my kids and we try to have a way to settle things and and uh, resolve disputes in some sort of a way that's constructive this particular night was about the television we had a a, a, a tv they were kind of new in the late 50s at least in statesbury i think you had like one channel in savannah but uh, we we're watching the tv program and my mom said well you know they got to go to school tomorrow it's time to time to go to school uh time to go to bed so they can get up and go to school and then my dad um you know would say no it's uh, it's not uh, it's you know this is a good show you know it's an educational thing they need to stay up and watch it and and we said yeah that's fine we'd like to stay and watch it and mom said no y'all need to go to bed going up to bed dad said no let them watch the show and um, they start arguing about it now that you know if you resolve an argument and decided what your parents going to do that's one thing but this argument didn't just resolve what happened is in the middle of this argument it switched sides uh, so next thing my dad said well you're right honey they got to go to school this program's not that important. Uh, your kids going up to school. And she would say, no, you know, you've are the you're the, you've got more education than I do. You know what's important and what's not. Kids, y'all stay up and watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> and so we said, okay. And so, and so the argument commenced in the other way. And, you know, after a while, I tuned out. I don't know how many times the sides were switched, but I do remember that night being chased up the stairs in our house to our bedrooms by both of them. <laughs> like I had done something wrong. And... I remember, and, and I remember that we didn't, like I said, we didn't have a lot of violence. I remember lying. Some of you, I think, have been over at Lee Street in Statesboro, and you know, there's a there's a living room and a, and a long line of stairs that goes up to the bedrooms that were mine and my brothers at that time, and, in Statesboro. And I would um, lie at the top of those stairs and listen to the, you know, the craziness of what was going on. I remember a fight that night it was that was one of the few physical fights that my folks had. And there were other things where my dad finally got, um, got sick. Well, let me tell you one other story, because these are these are the things that happened that, you know, you say, I'm sure there's a reason they did that, but I just couldn't quite figure it out. My dad uh, got a 56 Ford Thunderbird, and this was, I mean, you know, if you know, you know, this is the classic sports car. And I guess you know, there was three years they made the Thunderbird with the two seats, um, you know, that uh, had the fins and the style, and, you know, just really a neat car. He had the 56 model. He went up to Detroit, watched him make it, drove it back down, and uh, that summer we were, in, when he came back with it, we took a trip uh, to Tybee Island, and if any of you have ever been to Savannah Beach, it's a long road, US 80, between Savannah and Tybee Island, and we were out driving in the car, and it, a thunderstorm, which is also pretty common this time of year in, in that part of the country, uh, brewed up, and... You start seeing the you know, the rain and the thunder and the light and everything. And so, you know, I would I was not sure what to expect. We were in a convertible, so but it had a convertible top, so it's easy just to pull over, uh put the top up, ride through the the rain and then um you know, take the top down later on. But our solution to this uh event was that my dad said it's a long, straight road, no curves in it, and he figured that if he goes fast enough, the (laughs) rain would blow over the top of the roof. So he did instead of telling us to stop and let's get and put the car top up, he said, everybody just lean over and the rain will be, you know, the rain, we won't get wet and, you know, know, it'll be fine. And and I said, oh, okay. So if you wonder, uh, you know, why families of alcoholics are a little squirrely, um, (laughs) that's my excuse. (laughs) Um, When my dad, things finally fell apart in our family. You know, the surgeons would pick up after him when he would operate Uh, He would use a little bit of medication when he had a patient with cancer die. He had overprescribed some morphine for uh, the drugs got to be a part of his problem. Uh, Finally, people caught up with him and he was convicted of a narcotics violation, and that meant that he had to pay his dues. He went to Lexington, Kentucky, to um, the federal narcotic hospital. Uh, That it's now not the same facility, the facility's there, but it's a different institution now with a different purpose and a different name but he just dropped off the face of the earth. It was very confusing to me as to what was going on, and I did not know where he was. Nobody said, your dad's in prison. I guess they didn't have the heart to say that. What they would always say, because this wasn't the only time, this was his last time of going away, but there were other times where he uh, disappeared too. And I'd ask, well, where's daddy? And they said, oh, he's gone, uh, he's learning to be a better doctor. You know, they didn't want to go to hell for lying, but they didn't want to tell me he was in a nut house somewhere. <laughs> so, um, they walked the edge of the truth a little bit, and and I thought that obviously that they meant he was at a medical convention somewhere because he actually put an announcement in the paper saying he was in a medical convention. A lot of times when he went off to these psychiatric hospitals, you know, just you know just so the patients would think they were going to get back a a better doctor when he when he arrived back in town. But um, and then you know and that wasn't enough. You know I guess if it had just happened that way that wasn't a bit that wouldn't have been a big deal. But what would happen is a couple of three weeks later you know he'd go several weeks a month or so at these places and that was back at a time where the theory was that we won't really address the alcoholism at all we'll just kind of you know, look to see what's going on in your psyche or we'll distract you by doing you know, um, you know Paul talks about bronze moccas- moccasins and all that well my dad was into woodwork so what he would do is he would build furniture when he went to these places and so about 2 weeks after he had been gone learning to be a better doctor, we'd start getting all this furniture in the mail. And I remember I got toy chests and headboards and dressers and and you know, and I I guess I'd always tell people that's one of the reasons I decided to go to medical school. I wanted to go to one of those conventions where I could make furniture. <laughs> and And I, 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 nobody told me what the heck was going on. I guess they just they just they just couldn't. They didn't they didn't know either, but the time when he went to Lexington was particularly difficult, but he was, he was gone for a long time. And I was learning at that time, getting to be about 11 years old, that the numbers just weren't, in, weren't adding up. And what that taught me was that I couldn't trust anything I was hearing from my parents or from family or friends around because I, I knew I wasn't being told the truth. I just didn't know what was happening. Now what happens when, when that when that occurs in a person's life is we will make up, the person will make up a scenario that will explain kind of the worst-case Situation, So that no matter what is happening, the worst-case situation will explain it away so the person can, by reconciling the emotions with the worst-case situation, then you, you come out ahead when, whenever you learn the truth. Um, they actually did an experiment one time I learned when I, in medical school. They would have, um, when, when women had stillborn children they would get a sketch artist, like a police artist, to come in and say, Describe your stillborn, you know, when, they, when, the, when the, the mother was not allowed to see the baby. And they would draw a sketch of the... Bill has probably, probably heard some of this, this stuff. they draw a sketch of the stillborn that the mother would describe. And, um, and then when they analyzed this research, they realized that the sketches were always much more horrendous than the actual situation with the stillborn was the images that we'll create in our mind to resolve a conflict in our emotions are always much worse than the actual situation will turn out. And I've, I've practiced that and I've, you know, I've tried to, to incorporate the honesty the program talks about in every phase of my life like the, the, uh, the steps ask us to and I'm amazed at how well it works and how often the dishonesty not just in describing stillborn babies but how often the dishonesty really will disrupt any chance uh, I have a feeling better or hel- helping my patients deal with real situations no matter how grave the situation is um, And that's what I began to do when I didn't get an explanation I began to believe that my dad was dead and nobody had the guts to tell me and I lived with that about six months while he was off in treatment uh, Not knowing how to you know, who to ask or how to deal with and it became a very tangible thought in my mind as he began to get uh, You know get further along in treatment because month after month passed and he didn't come back home from what I know now was an important experience that was happening to him in Lexington, Kentucky the but during that time there were a lot of other things that were going on in our family because my mom's drinking behavior was accelerating um, you know she had was getting psychiatric care she was getting shock treatments um, we would drive to Savannah I was wearing braces at that time so I'd get my braces adjusted and she'd get her shock treatment um, I remember once and my dad's my dad's secretary would drive us to Savannah and I remember, and one time my mom—this is after I think my mom, she was in my, sec, my dad's secretary was in the right seat, my mom was driving. And I remember driving. It was another straight road on Highway 80 between Statesboro and Savannah. And I remember we were just going down the road, just normal. And all of a sudden, I looked out, and the woods were on this side. And then the car swung around. The woods were on this side, and um, you know we spun around a couple of times, and we ended up in the ditch. But fortunately, it was a you know an embankment, so we could come out of. And it was just like. Whoa, what was that? You know, and uh, I know now that that was part of the crazy re- reflexes and, and addiction that she was in. She thought she was addicted. I don't know if any of you ever heard my mom's story, but she thought she was addicted to electricity. I'd never seen anybody addicted to electricity before. <laughs> but, but finally, she, um, <laughs> because she, she really wanted those shock treatments, and, and it bothered her for a long time. <laughs> I mean, cuz she she her, went and they went to a lot of AA, and they I, you know it became a big part of our our lives but she was never able to find anybody else addicted to electricity and and so finally after she had been around a while she began to ask somebody what are, you know, what is a shock treatment you know what do they do and what she found out was that when they put when they give you the shock treatment they can't just you know turn the you know the, the current on what they do first is they put a needle in your arm and shoot you up with a big bolt of sodium pentothal to kind of knock you out. And so then once she heard the whole story about shock treatment, she realized that wasn't electricity she was addicted to. It was the pentothal they put her sleep with. So, so um, and then, and so she was. That, that was that part of my my family stuff was going on. My sister wasn't born then. We had two brothers, and um, we were all trying to survive. But we did have family that would that would help us. Um, we had an un- I had an uncle who lived out in uh, Gymp's, Georgia, which is six miles south of Statesboro on 301. And often on the weekends, we would go, um, you know, eat hamburgers and grill out and eat with my aunt and uncle. And they, they, they were, um, were trying to help us through this time. But my mom would always drink. And another terrifying experience I remember. And that was a time before there was a 75 and there was a 95. And if you know about Georgia geography, you know Highway 25 comes down from the Midwest Highway 301 comes down from the northeast, and they merge in Statesboro at Franklin's Restaurant, uh, and then everything 25 and 301 are on are, go south on st- from Statesboro, and it's a two-lane road. And at that time, it's probably one of the most dangerous heavily traveled roads in the state of Georgia. There are accidents all the time. But anyways, this was the road we had to travel to get to my uncle's to do the you know the the grilling out and all the stuff that we would do on the weekends because he lived on the in the on the farm. On the way, and things were fine. I don't even remember ever going out to my uncle's house. I remember being there, but the eventful part of the trips were always coming back when she was drunk. And I remember one night that um, I was having, you know, probably frequently, but I remember this particular one night where I was having drive. And this was another thing of how a lot of us in Al-Anon begin to develop feelings of inadequacy. And I think it contributes a lot uh, in some way, a lot of the ways that I feel like i am I hate to use the word scarred because I've found a way to take most of these traits that i uh, was given in in addiction and they 've now become positive elements in my personality in my life so, but i for lack of a better um better word i'll use i 'll use scarred because in a sense that's that's what we we, we throw around but there're really more attributes that I developed during the drinking years, and alon has allowed me to turn those into good things for the most part but I remember um, driving, uh, with her driving down the road, and I remember, you know, that was back before we had padded dashes or anything. You had the metal dash. I remember putting my hands on that and feeling that cold metal, looking over at probably 10 years old at that time. That was before my 11th birthday, looking over the dashboard on the windshield with this busy road traffic going both ways, saying, no, Mom, we don't turn here. Turn off your blinker. No, I'll tell you when to turn your blinker on. A little bit to the left. Be careful. You're going across the road. And I remember making that trip back. Literally, I was doing the driving, and she was just, using the gas brake and, and steering wheel. And if you, if you think that living with an alcoholic like that won't make you feel inadequate, that's, you know, that's what we experience. And, you know, I was not anesthetized. I still have vivid memories of that. Um, and some of the craziest things that, that I, I... Some of the things affected me in the craziest ways. Another thing that happened one night when we were leaving my uncle's was um, he lived on a dirt road about two miles before you get to Highway 301. And this particular night, we didn't even make it to 301. We, we were like in the ditch halfway to 301 from my uncle's house. And again, it was one of those, you know, trees on this side, trees on that side. Next thing you know, we we're in the ditch. Except this was a dirt road, and it's real sandy in that part of the um, that part of the state. And it like if you get in uh, into the ditch in the sand, you're not going to get out. So that's where we were. We were stuck, pitch black, middle of the night, late Saturday night, nobody around. And, of course, you know whose job it was to solve the problem. Well, that was me. Mom said, you know, run back and get your uncle and tell him to bring a tractor or something. So I remember um, running that night, back ran the whole way back to my uncle's house. And, you know, I'm I i I'm sure there weren't lions and tigers or anything around in the woods. But, you know, at 10 years old, I didn't know that for sure. And I remember just seeing every shadow in the woods was like a big wild animal jumping on me. I was scared, you know, down to my core. And... Got there, you know, pulled them out, and, and um, you know, the, nobody ever said, well, you know, your mom was drunk and she ran the ditch. That would have been, you know, that'd been fine. That was the truth, and I could have accepted that. But um, what was, what they told me, what I remember being told is that it wasn't her fault on a dirt road, I don't know whether there's a dirt road left in Atlanta or not, but um, if you go anywhere where there's a dirt road, what you do is you scrape a road one way with this road scraper, and you come back the other way and you scrape it to get it flat, and it leaves a little tiny ridge of sand in the middle, you know, a couple of inches high, depending on how they scraped it. And the theory of that night was that we were just traveling that road down that road going back to 301, minding our own business, and all of a sudden the tire happened to hit that little ridge, and it just picked us up and threw us in the ditch. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling the story not because I believe it's true anymore, but I remember when I started driving, I had a horrible fear of riding a the road they had just scraped, because I could still see that little ridge. <laughs> and there's not a dirt road I drive down now that I don't think about that, those lions and tigers, every time I see where they just scraped the road. So these memories that are so often lost in the alcoholic mind are indelibly implanted in our, in our or at least in my mind, and, I, and, in, and I'm, I'm comforted by talking with Al-Anons in in meetings that that also happens to a lot of other people who have lived with alcoholism. Also, AA members, you know, I I probably won't have time to talk about this much later after um, I get involved in in Al-Anon, but a lot of AA members have those feelings that AA has not dealt with. I mean, AA doesn't deal with a lot of that stuff in my experience. It can, but a lot of people don't address those little insignificant feelings like I'm describing in my life in AA, and I've seen a huge number of AA members that after 5, 10, 25 years of sobriety will then move over into Al-Anon and deal with some of those, you know, real um, deep attributes from growing up in an alcoholic family. I've watched AA members come into Al-Anon who were very angry and resentful. You know, the people that hang around AA for years and years and still have a resentment at everything that walks in front of them, often, um, in, in my experience, when those people have come to Al-Anon, they, they might not even realize before they get there, but they've had an alcoholic family member or a father or they've lived with those little ridges in the roads like I had and things like that, and it can create really fears that we don't know where are coming from. And I'm so grateful that al has allowed me to help understand and through an inventory deal with some of those fears that are, uh, that are there. Well, my dad finally did come back from Lexington, and when he came back, uh, he was a different person. I don't remember exactly when he came back. I, I can tell you when he was supposed to come back because that had another impression on me, but he, um, if you ever heard his story, he flew from Lexington to Savannah, I mean to Atlanta, changed the planes in Atlanta. And that's another reason I guess being here this weekend completes a lot of circles for me because that switch in Atlanta was an important part of his story. He did not have the courage to get on the plane to, um, to go to Savannah. And I'm probably getting a little ahead of myself because what had happened is my uncle, there's a... Um, And an uncle, Uncle Bill and Aunt Honey, he was, uh, Uncle Bill was mayor of Statesboro. Our backyards adjoined. And I was lucky to have friends that when things got really rough, they'd kind of look in in through the back door. They'd come over to our house and they would scoop me up and take me out of, of, me and my brothers, out of the family when things really got bad. I remember this summer that uh, my dad ended up going to Lexington. We went down to the beach, to St. Simons, to uh, Aunt Honey and Uncle Bill's house. And that's when there was a lot that was going on in our family then. My dad's life was collapsing, he was getting to Lexington, my, but my grandmother often died too. Um, my parents weren't there to tell me that my gran- grandmother died. I don't ever remember. I don't think we've ever we ever talked about my grandmother's death with my parents. Uncle Bill was there to do that. I remember walking back into the house and seeing, you know, when they have the, the viewing at your house, they have the little podium and the guest book and special flowers and lights and all that stuff. All that was still there. Of course, she was buried. But uh, Uncle Bill had prepared me, he had said that my grandmother had died. Um, Again, in my dad's story he talks about everything falling apart, going to Lexington at about the time my grandmother died. And I never had a chance to talk with my dad about this, but I've always felt, if any of you knew him and, and know my mom, you know what a passion they have for recovery and what a commitment they have done to help the suffering alcoholic. And I've always believed that part of the reason that my dad was committed like he was is because his mother died. When he was in, he actually had to get a, a person deputized to take him out of his handcuffs to take him to his mother's funeral. She was the only person probably in Statesboro that knew how sick he was. She kept saying for years, "Something's wrong with John." And everybody else said, "No, he's a surgeon. He's doing fine." And until the deputy sheriff took him to Lexington and he stood before the judge being sentenced for that, it was as though everybody in town was saying, "He's just, he's just fine." And when my grandmother died, she never had a chance to see him uh, recover. And one of the ways that I believe we can make amends are taking those uh, those events that people who should have known what, what has happened to us but can't uh, and turning those around so now we can share our recovery with other people because thousands of people were helped through 12-step work and professional work with what my dad and mom had done. And I think a lot of it had to do with some of those uh, voids in our family at that time. But anyways, I remember coming back uh, to, going down to Savannah that time. We were supposed to meet him at the plane and um, the Savannah Airport was a lot different than it is now. We didn't have the concourses. Everybody would walk out to the, to the chain link fence and the DC-7 or whatever it was, the, the stairs would come down and you'd walk in and you, wa- you could watch people getting off the stairs of the airplane. It's a real dramatic event, you know, and we watched everybody get off the airplane that my dad was supposed to be on and he never got off. And in my mind, and again, it was not anything I knew how to talk with people about, but in my mind, I knew that he was dead, and nobody had the guts to tell me, and that was kind of the way they showed me with behavior that he wasn't coming back, because it had been built up to this was the event, and, um, and I had learned a long time before that, you don't believe anything an alcoholic says, but you do believe the behavior, and, um, and I still think that's true. Um, um, some of these things we learned turned out to last, um, but we went back home, and his return was a very uneventful experience. Next thing I remember is that that first night he was home and my mom was still sick then she was still, you know, searching for her solutions, but my dad came up and it was the strangest feeling. Uh, I've I watched other families see a loved one come back and experience it. You may have, but it was the body that left. It was my dad's body, but there was a different person in it. It was exactly what the program talks about about getting a new personality. This was a person that I'd, I'd never known. He, I, I was 11 years old. He had been drinking all those years. And this was somebody I didn't know. And he came in um, to our room, and my, brothers, my two brothers and I had an upstairs room that I uh, mentioned. We had been chased upstairs to before. And uh, he sat around that night and, ju- and just talked. And it was the first real honest, open discussion that we had. You know, they had dropped us off at Sunday school. He was actually a, a Sunday school teacher during those years. But I don't ever remember sitting down and having a conversation like this. And it was not just, uh, it wasn't really, a, I guess we must have asked questions, but to me, I remember it as a one-way conversation where he was trying to tell us what he had gotten in his recovery. He was telling us about AA and uh, and I think I think also making amends. I didn't understand enough of what was going on, but it was just what I needed to hear because as the oldest child in that family, I had taken the weight of the world on my shoulders. I had somehow believed that I was all this confusion, I was responsible for everything that had been going on in a distorted sort of crazy unconscious sort of way and um he said no I, you know none of us were responsible we had had a lot of things going on in our family and he didn't even offer a lot of hope he said you know i've, I've met some people you know I've, we've got a new way to live and i'm sure he mentioned the words a.a and steps and all but he said we've tried a lot of things and it ha- and it hasn't worked um we're gonna we're gonna try some new things and we're told that it's going to work and we trust the people that have told us that this is going to work because nothing else really has and he went around the room and he pointed. I remember him pointing to me and my two brothers and he said, "You know, one of the ways we're going to do it is kind of a spiritual way." You know, there's, and you know, I didn't have any big, real deep religious conceptions of God. I knew you had to go to church and there was a higher power. I, I believed in that. But he said, "You know, there's a little bit of God in you and you," and he pointed to my brothers and sister. And he says, "A little bit of God in your mother," and together, we're going to work together to make that force have some impact in our lives. And for me, it was a it was like a weight coming off. Now I still didn't know what AA was all about because when he was drinking, he would talk. He was an 82nd Airborne, you know, they jumped into Sicily and jumped into Normandy, and you know he was kind of a. war. he was in the medical corps, but he even liberated a town in Italy by mistake. I heard that story a couple of times. You know, they somebody crossed up the road signs, and the and the, and their 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 field hospital marched into the town, and the Italians were waving the flags and everything, and and um. And they and, and they said, what are you doing that for? They said, oh, y'all ran the Germans out. Thank you so much. You know, so we used to hear these. these stories. He came back from World War II. You know, the insignia. You see that a lot of you have seen the you know the AA insignia, the little curved A's that are back to back together. Well, that actually is a, is an insignia for the 82nd Airborne Division. And when he came back from the 82nd Airborne Division, of World War II, at that time, the way you didn't have bumper stickers that were paper like we and plastic like we have today, you had ten bumper stickers. I'm really I, I hope. There's somebody in this room that can identify with what I'm saying. I don't really think I'm very old until I start telling these stories. But um, he had a little tin um, bumper stickers that you riveted to a bumper. And that was like what you used for bumper stickers back then. And he had one of these. And instead of putting it on the car, he tacked it on the wood framing of his study. He had a study where occasionally he would, he would read and see patients in our home. And he tacked it. I think he had probably forgotten that it, it was even there. He tacked it to the inside of the, of the door facing in the study in our home, and it was just this AA sitting above the study, and, and I heard, you know, I knew that was airborne paratroopers, and I knew, um, you know, the war stories, and all I heard was AA for about six months, and so, you know, it didn't bother me, you know, but I, I didn't know what, how a bunch of paratroopers had helped change things in our family so much, <laughs> but, but, you know, I was willing to go with the flow, you know, because we were doing things together, and, um, and we were having vacations and, and going to neat meetings, and I would hear, the other thing that, that happened is that and it was a little different then than it is now. You know, it wasn't like you go to a meeting and everybody hurries home or anything. It was like you had to work to go to a meeting. There were like two meetings a week in Statesboro at that time. And it was hard to get to other meetings. And after a while, there were three meetings, but they would go to a meeting every night. And sometimes, and that's one of the reasons that they were connected with. Um, we, we, with Clarence and Martha up here, and Virgil and Margaret Warren—it you know, Virgil and Margaret Warren. It's the reason I know a lot of the names of the old-time Atlanta people because it would be unusual for them to take off and come to a meeting in Atlanta, Jacksonville, uh, you know, Walterboro, South Carolina, um, Waycross, Savannah, uh, Macon. They were traveling all around the state four nights out of the week, and then they were staying at home to go to meetings three nights out of the week. And it wasn't just showing up at the meeting; they would have like a meeting for an hour or two going to a meeting. And it was like the meeting was just kind of something you, something that you had to do you know the real meeting happened before and after and then there was a couple um, some of you know Cornel. Corneal uh, was married to Louise at that time Louise is dead and he's got he's remarried but and lives in Myrtle Beach but Corneal Louise didn't have any kids so they didn't have to worry about what time they got up in the morning or when they went to bed and so they would come from Savannah to the meeting and they would literally stay up all night long and talk and they'd go back to Savannah when the Sun would would come up um, and then and I, would, I remember I was, that, that, my program then shifted from more of a confusion to what I call a fascination. You know, I love listening to AA stories. And I know now that part of the reason I love the AA program and listening to the stories is because I began to get some insight into my pain and what was going on in my life. But it was also important at that time, and I think sometimes we miss this in al it was important for me to be safe to learn about the program but not have to sit in a room where I had to talk. And it was nice to be involved with AA on the periphery at that time because I could hear the funny stories I could learn and assimilate some of what the program was about but you know I didn't have to really get involved uh in some ways the I guess the pain or whatever but I you know I wasn't ready to start talking about myself I didn't know how to and it wasn't um and I I just wouldn't I don't know that I ever come around if I had to just show up at an online mo- meeting and started to start talking but I would hear stories you know about all these wild things. Y'all heard CD, I guess, and you know CD would talk about his flying jets and waking up in the cockpit 25,000 feet drunk or sober now not knowing how to land a B-25 and stuff like that. And then I heard about a guy that, um, you know, that went from coast to coast on a train and Charles and I tried to figure out who, what his name was. I can't remember. Maybe Clancy or somebody remember who this was. But, you know, he got thirsty driving his train coast to coast um, and, and he decided that he, he couldn't just stop the train and get a drink. So what he did is he... Um, he put the train in sheds all around the track for about 200 miles and went out and got drunk and woke up in a hospital. And, um, and they said, look, you know, Joe, don't, um, you know, we won't do anything to you, but just tell us what did you do with the freight train? <laughs> 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 and, you know, I loved all the stories, and it, it began to make sense because the other thing that would happen is all the people that were around our house, C.D. and I and Raymond and, and some other folks, I had learned I couldn't trust what my folks were saying But I was able to look at what these other people were saying, and then I could translate it back to what was going on in our family. So I began to kind of tiptoe into the world of trust with my parents again. And it was really important for them to be with each other, because when we did things as a group, it was often, the benefit to me came often through these other people, and the kids would get together and talk, and then, like I said, by 61, we actually started Um, An Alateen group where it became a little bit more structured at that time, and that was that was important But there was also a downside to all this family stuff And I want to make this really really clear too as far as what I believe Because we were not our parents first priority in recovery the kids the family was not their first their first priority was their sobriety Because I often hear parents come into the program and say You know, oh, I, I can't go to a meeting tonight or I can't do this or I can't do that because I want to be with my kids and um, there are very few things I'll look somebody in the eye and tell them bullshit about, but that's one of them <laughs> um, because that's bullshit. Um, and it took me a long – and, and, I, and I, had a, I had to have a program before I understood why it was that way. But my parents made it absolutely clear. I mean, they didn't come up and tell me, look, y'all are playing second fiddle. But I, m- I missed them as much when they got into the program because of all this stuff that they were doing to travel around the, around the state to get their recovery. Uh, as In some ways, as I missed them before they had a recovery. They weren't gone for weeks or months of the stretch anymore, and we had to, you know, to organize our time a little bit better. And a lot of our time, when there was weekends and events, were family time, going to AA retreats and conventions, and and that's where I met a lot of the people in Atlanta. We would um, we would come up to um, the Georgian Terrace Hotel. I remember we had a convention, and and I um, I, w- I met, you know, of course I was just used to Clarence and. And Martha Roberts and and Carol uh, and I became friends and dated a while and she was like one of the first girlfriends and you know so all these names that you are talking about this weekend just really bring back bring back memories and I think it was I mean I like Carol but at that time nobody knew what a vinyl roof was and her dad had this black Lincoln I think with one of the first vinyl roofs and man I loved that car um, I thought it was convertible till she convinced me it was something new called a vinyl roof but anyways. Um, But we would go and we went to birmingham there are a lot of people that you know all these same people showed up at all these conventions around so we became pretty good friends going to these conventions went back to louisville kentucky and and uh, my dad talked at the southeastern convention in louisville kentucky back uh in the 60s sometimes i don't remember when and he got uh, he was you know they gave the speakers at the convention they honored them with making them kentucky colonels and so he got he was so proud of being a kentucky colonel and uh, I didn't realize what it was for a long time, because last time he went to Kentucky, he was in handcuffs in a sheriff's car <laughs> going to Lexington. And all I knew that being, you know, watching him, being a Kentucky colonel was like the greatest thing in the world. I you know, now it makes sense in understanding all the background. But uh, I was asked to go back and be a visiting professor at the um, uh, uh, at University of Louisville and a program they're doing to help alcoholics called the Healing Place, which is a real remarkable facility. But um, Burns Brady asked me, said, Al, oh, when you're in Louisville, is there anything in the world, you know, that you like while you're here? And I, I told him uh, two things. I said, yeah, I always wanted to be a Kentucky Colonel. <laughs> so, so, you know, Donald Burns, 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 you know, big shot and he'll pull strings and he, you know, next thing I know, I show up and they, you know, I'm a Kentucky Colonel now. So, um, and the other thing was that, uh, I, um, I wanted to do, uh, I wanted to, to, to do grand rant. This probably wouldn't mean anything to those obvious aren't positions in the room, but um, I wanted to do grand rounds at the University of Louisville Hospital on the surgical intensive care unit because I, I'll probably have to, I will have to skip over a lot of my medical school stuff. Like I'm just, I could, y'all probably don't need to be here as long as I need to talk. But anyways, <laughs> um, <laughs> but but one of the things that helped me decide what I wanted to do with life was at the University of Louisville um, when I was there trying to be a surgery intern. I had decided I was going to go into surgery and I kept getting hit broadside with all these alcoholics that kept dying. You know, I had never seen an alcoholic die because when my folks got sober, everybody, and this is, you know, a lot of people have have attitudes about alcoholism like it's something really negative, but honest to God, alcoholism was a great thing to have. Everybody that I saw who was an alcoholic always got well and lived happily ever after, usually got the family back, got a job, and I really it I mean, it just did never occur to me until I got into medical school at at Emory that alcoholics die. And I remember the first time it happened. I was a second year, third year medical student on at Emory University Hospital, making rounds on a internal medicine floor, and there was a guy who was having barbiturate withdrawal. He was shaking and, you know, out of his head and, you know, they were you know they didn't know what was going on and it was like everybody was scratching their heads saying, you know, what's happening? We don't know what's wrong with this guy and you know, they just kinda of doing tests, trying to figure it out and we went home that night, came back the next morning, and you know, when somebody dies, they have brand new clean sheets on the bed, the edges are tucked under, you know, all the all the um luggage is gone, you know, old flowers are gone and I walked and that bed was just that room was just as sterile as it could be the next morning. So I knew he hadn't gone down for a test somewhere. And I said, What happened to, to Joe during the night? They said, Oh, he died last night. Nobody ever figured out what had, what's happened, what was going on with him. And it was like, What do you mean? Nobody ever figured out. The guy was an alcoholic and they just he just wasn't getting treated and I saw the same thing happen at Grady one time uh, a patient came in in DTs and, and I had a resident and, he, and this so I'm kind of a cynic even though it's, it's my profession I'm, I'm kind of a cynic about uh, what I learned from ivory tower medicine because I've been headed off on some tangents in my career but I had a resident one time and this was soon after I saw another alcoholic die at Grady without getting any help this resident said and I was really with him and I, I'm not gonna tell you who he is but he's practicing down in southwest Georgia and he said Al you know, I'm a junior resident or something where you really need to know about alcoholism. It's really important to di- make a diagnosis. And I said, man, I, you know, finally somebody at Emory that I agree with. And, um, and, and Craig says, well, um, because what you do is you need to remember there's never anything you can do for them. So you need to discard them and focus on everybody else in your practice. And I looked at him and, you know, I said, man, what am I, what am I doing? I'm trying to get a medical education here. And so. Um, and so obviously I I, I just didn't realize what I had grown up in and the recovery that I had seen and and how that had affected uh, you know my view of addiction. Uh, Went on not understanding how that was going to play out in my professional life. Went on to be a surgeon and when uh, I got to Louisville I remember one particular there was a lot of things that happened there that I'll skim over but one particular patient that I was dealing with on the surgery floor was a a person that had um, acute recurrent attacks of pancreatitis. Now, if you've ever had pancreatitis, um, it's not something you want to go out and get. And most people would think if you had pancreatitis, it's enough to stop drinking over because it hurts like hell. Every time this guy would go out and drink, his pancreas would digest itself and it would give him tremendous pain. He'd he'd get dehydrated. It would hemorrhage. He'd be back in the hospital. And we watched this revolving door over and over again. And we scratched our head around him one day on rounds. And everybody was real proud. They finally figured out what we were going to do for this guy. And the solution to this guy's problem was what's called a 95% pancreatectomy. What we're going to do, we're going to take his pancreas out so he could never get an attack of pancreatitis again. And when you do that, you do two things. First of all, we took his pancreas out, so I guess he could drink himself to death now without worrying about hurting his pancreas. And the second thing, the pancreas makes insulin, so we made him an a irreversible insulin-dependent diabetic for whatever little life he had left. And I began to think. I said, oh, "There's something wrong with this picture," but there was no specialty of addiction treatment at that time. And I tried to decide what I was going to do, and headed out in um, in a different direction along a pathway of family medicine, which I still practice today. But to get back to my story, when I get when I went to Louisville to the Healing Place, I had told Burns I wanted to do the surgical grand rounds because I remember in that surgery internship we saw all those patients and I knew that there'd be different faces, but half those people in that intensive care unit would be there because of alcohol and drug problems. And so uh Burns asked Hiram Polk, who's a you know the, the head of the department of surgery if we could make rounds with him one morning, not knowing what it would what would happen. But as we started going around, they would you know they would the and this is a very intimidating situation for residents and medical students, but they would, you know, shake as they presented these cases and everybody would quiz them over this and that. And all those attendings talking about all this important medical surgical stuff, and like I thought, about half the patients nobody ever touched on the underlying issue of addiction. And it took a couple of comments. Burns started it, and you know I, got, I chimed in. But we talked about the place of the addictive behavior in putting that person in the intensive care unit. And after the rounds were over, the surgical faculty that were on and most of the important guys show up at those things. About half, you know, most of those guys realized that half of their patients that they, they were spending day and night trying to save. Were there for a completely preventable treatable disease and it, it just like gone right over there their heads I guess for the 20 years all that time that I had been gone from my, my residency so it was also in Louisville I'm going to skip all the parts about coming to Atlanta going to medical school and ended up back in Louisville but when I got out of my surgery internship I realized I didn't know what I needed to do but I knew that there was something other than a traditional medical practice that I needed to be doing because I had seen things work out differently for alcoholics. My mom and dad never decided to work with alcoholics professionally, but they were passionate about their recovery. And as they traveled around the state, something really weird happened um, that evolved into a treatment program because they would go to AA meetings and there would often be, you've probably got people like this in your group, people that keep relapsing, that want the program desperately, that just for some reason it wouldn't work. Um, but they wanted it. They were just like with well, a pain in the butt because they kept showing up and you wish they almost wouldn't come back because they're not a very good example of what A can do. And these people would be in the meetings and um, my dad was a doctor and my mom was a nurse. So they'd say, well, John, and, and they were, they were, you know, ignorant enough. So they thought they were supposed to be doing 12-step work to take care of these people. So they they would say, John, you're a doctor. Your, your wife's a nurse. Um, you know, why don't you do something? we we'll get them sober and we'll take them back or something like that. So they would frequently come back from these trips to AA meetings with somebody in, some drunk in the back seat, and those people would live in our home. My dad would take them down to his office to work the next morning. He'd, you know, give them some detox, and, and they would get sober. They'd hang around Statesboro. Some are still living there today. Some would hang around for weeks, months. Some would leave, um, and often those people would leave and uh, go back to the AA program they loved, now sober and you know, able to make it, and you know, there's people around AA all, all over now that have have experienced that, and now are, are pillars in the AA community. Families involved in Al Anon and all that. They got something that um, that AA wasn't able to give them at that point. And in the Big Book, if you look under how it works, and that's where I take my job description as an alcoholism professional is on the in fact, Chapter Five in the Big Book and how it works. It really talks more in that first paragraph about how AA doesn't work than how it does. It talks about people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves is kind of the failures of AA and and my mom and dad didn't realize at the time but I think that's what they were doing they were taking people who needed more because they were constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves Mm -hmm. and somehow whittling the square edges off uh, the edges off the square peg fitting it into the round hole of AA and it worked very very well and a lot happened after that we um somebody mentioned that you know Conway spent a little time in Statesboro and uh, even this roundup is connected to some of those things because I remember when I came to Emory in 1966, uh, Conway, I, and I've confirmed that uh, uh, Glenn said that he remembers that old blue Cadillac that Conway had. Uh, I remember Conway and my dad unloading tru- trunks of clothes over at Longstreet Hall at Emory for me to come to my first year of college here in Atlanta. He and my dad were good friends, and Conway was a big part of our life, and, and he and my dad liked to start conventions, you know, and I think my dad would still be doing it if he were alive, and Conway's continuing to do it, so that was just a part of the way they shared their, their message. I went on to do my residency in Louisville, and that's where I got into al and it's the strangest thing because I was 15 years away from anybody in my family having an alcohol problem. I was 750 miles away from anybody um, in my family, and it's really a minor miracle in my life as to how I got involved in, in Al-Anon. Um, there was a... I, w- I had a lot of contact with AA people. I was working with alcoholics and, um, and I was riding a roller coaster with those people that I was trying to help with detox and trying to open up a door for some other form of recovery. And when one of them would get sober I would feel like I was a hero. I had saved a life and I felt so good. But these were Skid Row alcoholics and for everyone that would get sober I would read about another one or maybe two in the newspaper, read the obituary of, of several dying. And then I would, you know, I'd be downhill on that roller coaster. I'd be depressed and I'd feel like I had failed in some way. What could I have done to save that person? What, what could I have said? What could I have given them? What could I have referred them to? Um, why, how did I fail? And uh, a wise Al-Anon who was, at that time, I think Paul uh, L. was a trustee of Al-Anon, uh, was involved in some other things I was doing, and, and Paul suggested, and I wish I could had bottled what he suggested because he got me to Al-Anon. And I was not interested in going to Al-Anon. I just didn't think, I mean, I was doing a lot more important things by helping these drunks and detoxing them and practicing medicine, and last thing on my mind was going to Al-Anon, but Paul suggested to me in a way that I couldn't refuse that I should probably try Al-Anon. Because he saw that emotional roller coaster that I was on, and I and I did acknowledge that there was a lot of feelings I was having, but I knew it was what I needed to do. But the emotions were such that I felt like I didn't know whether I could do this very long, and so it was like being in a trap of something that I knew I was right for, but didn't know whether I could handle it. And there was a men's Al-Anon group, and again, that was another little miracle because a lot of places don't have men's Al-Anon, or I wouldn't have had that door open. And now it doesn't matter you know I'll sit in a a Al-Anon group and I couldn't tell you at the end of it how many men and how many women were there it's just not a big deal but it was important for me to have some men at that time to be at Al- Anon with and Paul suggested I come to that meeting and fortunately I had heard enough from AA members to know that I probably would not like what I heard at the first meeting so I decided nobody told me this I had just heard enough of you guys say it to know that I needed to go to 12 Al-Anon meetings before I decided what I was going to show up again, well, I was going to keep coming, it was going to become part of my life. And before I walked through the door the first time, I, I knew I was going to be there at least 12 times. And I'm glad I had decided that because as we were walking down the steps of the church there in St. Matthew's in Louisville, Paul put his hand around me, on, you know, around my shoulder. And I, you know, remember, I thought I had kind of done them a favor to show up at this meeting. And, and um, Paul put his arm around me and said, Al, really good to have you here tonight. I think we can help you. <laughs> and I, didn't, I was not interested in hearing that but I did keep coming back and I knew another thing that I'd heard from AA is I got a job, I didn't smoke but about half these guys smoked and my job was to empty the ashtrays and so they would be talking around after the meeting and i just heard enough AA talk to know that you need to start out emptying ashtrays so I started emptying ashtrays and, um, and my job wasn't done I didn't talk to anybody so I'd finished e- emptying the ashtrays after every Al-Anon meeting and I missed a meeting one week, and I wondered how in the hell those ashtrays got empty uh, because it had, nobody else seemed to mind about them except me. Um, and, and, and then I don't even remember 12 weeks going by. I just remember I kept going to Al-Anon, and, it, was, um, you know, and it, it became an important part of my life. Some other things changed, and this is the boring part of my story because you know, it wasn't like any lights flashed, and it wasn't like anything exciting happened. But I began to realize what a rigid person I had become. And it, it happened in the strangest way with me, with going out to eat dinner. And it happened, like, with eating your salad at a meal. You know, I would always go out to eat somewhere, and I would have... I would always order something that I thought I knew what it was going to be like. You know, I would order fried shrimp, fried chicken, um, you know, some... You know, ground beef or, you know, something that I knew what I was going to get. Mashed potatoes, you know, this... this and Salad dressing, a Thousand Island, of French—you know—I knew it was usually out of a bottle. You knew exactly what you were going to get. And as I began to get further along in my program, I began to be um, uncomfortable with being that rigid a person. I began to find—I began to take interest in taking some more risk. And the first way that I, the first tangible way that I remember that, is I began to when some when somebody would talk about the dressings that they had at a restaurant. I began to wonder, what is their house, you know, what is a what is house dressing, what, is, you know, what, is it, you know, what does it taste like? And, um, and I remember ordering a salad with a house dressing one time. I mean, that was like an epiphany for me, you know? <laughs> I, could like, I could like take the chef's word that for it that something was good at the restaurant, that he ran, you know? So, um, and, you know, and, I, and I got some pleasant surprises when I was willing to take that kind of risk, you know? <laughs> and, I'll, and I find now, I'll, I'll, I'll often be anxious to take what's on the kind of the special menu, or I'll ask somebody at a restaurant. Sometimes they think I'm kind of silly to do it, but I'll ask, um, you know, what do you think is the best thing that you have, or what would you try? What do you, you know, and and I've it has never failed me. And that's not the kind of person I am, or not the kind of person I was at that time when I first got into al Line. I had some other transitions in my Al-Anon program. I want to tell you very quickly about a couple of those because I've not been involved in al ever since that time, I mean that was 1976. I knew I was a member of Al-Anon on, on Tuesday night, 8 o'clock or 8.05 on uh, January 27, 1976 and it happened something like this. My wife had been pregnant and I had given up a lot to go to al That was when Mac, our Al-Anon group was on 8 o'clock Tuesdays and MASH came on at 8 o'clock Tuesdays and I, you know, I didn't have much of my life but that was one t- TV show that I liked to see and i had this terrible decision to make as well i was going to al anon or, or go to mash and i decided i don't know how i did it but i decided to go to al anon i guess it was if i didn't go to the men's group i'd have to go to a women's group so i guess that was better you know i don't know how i rationalized it but ended up going to that and and that was another one of these little spiritual experiences for me i gave i didn't know how important al anon was but i knew how important mash was and so what i frequently tell people today is Give up something. Find a meeting right in the middle of something that you know you really want to do and miss it to go to your meeting. Miss the Super Bowl to go to a meeting. Miss opening Christmas presents with your family. Miss doing something that you know is really important because if you're willing to do that, like I was willing to miss MASH, I knew, and it it, it wasn't always clear because we don't have a little barometer that tells us how important our program is, but this told me that my al program was more important for those 12 weeks that I decided to do it than Nash was. And I'm glad I decided to do that but um, it was it was helpful but I knew I was a member when I um, my my first son was born on that that day January 27th 1976 and he was born at 805 and I remember you know when you when your baby's born um, a doctor will do it and and uh, and I guess most parents do you know you the baby's born and then you look at the clock and I remember John being delivered and then looking at the clock and it was Tuesday, 8.05, and I said, oh my God, I missed my meeting. (laughs) And then, I didn't admit that to my wife for a long time, but, (laughs) because she had a pretty bad labor, and she wasn't ready to hear that for a while. (laughs) But, um, but then, you know, and the days later, I processed that, and I said, you know, I must be a member of that organization now. (laughs) And. When I when I left, a lot of things happened to get me back to um, into family medicine, uh, get me back to Willingway. My dad was getting sick. I never made a decision to go back to Statesboro, but I just did because I I needed to do what my dad was doing in treatment. At this time, this little um, event where they had kept bringing people into our home, we had 25 people living in our home at one time. Um, I remember coming to one of those conventions, and the Georgia Convention, I think at the Georgian Terrace in Atlanta, and I've heard some people talk about 12-step work. Often I think AA people don't know how to do 12-step work anymore. Unfortunately treatment has stolen that opportunity or around for a generation of AAs. A lot of AAs don't know what it's like back like in the 50s and 60s to do 12-step work and I've heard some people talk this weekend about doing more 12-step work and I think that's uh, that's wonderful. But um, this was not just like any 12-step work. You know the people that you guys from Atlanta put on my folks weren't the kind of people that you go out and visit in the house. I mean we left the, the Georgian Convention and my dad and mom said, oh, you know, we our station wagon all packed up going back to the station wagon. said, we've got to make one more stop before we go back to Statesboro. We've got to pick up a drunk to take back home with us. And so I just thought we were going to drop by somebody's house. But I remember we went to the Fulton County Jail, and, um, and the gates opened up. You know, two sets of gates, I think, with lots of barbed wire. The, you know, the guard searched the car, moved us on through. And I, I, I can pick, I don't know whether this is right, but I think they've got like a place where you can drive in with your car and all. Because I remember doing all that. And then um, they brought this guy out in shackles and handcuffs and a prison suit and everything and, un, you know, unlocked him, and he got in the car and came back and lived with us about six months. Um, and, you know, and and um, Ray was a, a radio announcer, and he announced radio on, on uh, you know, in Statesboro for years and years. Everybody in Statesboro knew him because he was the chief radio announcer in Statesboro for decades. I, I think he's gotten elder. I don't think, I don't know whether Ray's still alive now, but um you know that was that was kind of the the way things had evolved and um the you know like i say our house was flooded with these people that uh, of this this particular variety and and it wasn't my folks they thought they were doing 12 step work but the accountant came in one day because my dad was basically going bankrupt again doing this what he thought was 12 step work and the accountant came in and said john i've got some bad news you know you're going to be bankrupt again just like when you were drinking you're you're getting into the same kind of trouble And he said, said, well, we're doing 12-step work. You know, we've got to do this to stay sober. And uh, and the candidate said, no, you know, I believe if this were 12-step work, you know, these people would be handled locally with the a groups. They're just like you are. And if if it's not working for them, you may be doing something, but you're not doing 12-step work. And uh, you're doing some kind of medical treatment or something. You're running a hospital. We need to find a building to put it in. And and that was really the incentive for getting the treatment uh, started in Statesboro that my folks... Uh, Continued to to be involved with, Um, so because a lot of people have trouble drawing the boundaries between treatment and AA, and to me they're absolutely clear. There's no there's no overlap at all in my mind. If I'm doing if I'm charging because I do I work in the field professionally, and if I'm charging for somebody for something they can get free down the street in AA, I'm doing something unethical. So um, you know I know people walk in my office. I'll always say. you know, let me send you to AA before you spend a lot of money with me. Now, if they're shaking, they need some medicine, and y'all don't prescribe, so I have to be involved in that loop. But um, most of the people I work with have absolutely no interest, at least when I first talked with them, about going to AA. And, um, and I'm privileged to be a conduit back to the fellowship and, and really pride, you know, my background on allowing me to, to do that. Things have not always been pleasant. Like I said, I've I've not had... The alcohol and chemicals to deal with and that's not even an option. I don't think we have the option, well we have the option to drink and, and, and drug in al if we want to, but what I believe is that we've got a program just like AA that if we use our program we won't need alcohol or drugs. There are some people I know that drink and use drugs in Al-Anon but um, I just have a different philosophy because I don't think you go to AA to stop drinking. Uh, C.D. says very clearly he stopped drinking a long time ago. He goes to AA to learn how to live. So he doesn't need to drink, and that's the same, exactly the same reason I go to, to Al-Anon. I know chemically I don't have—I've got a time bomb. My kids do, uh, too. So we've we've had to learn a different way of living than the alcohol that's been present in our family has always been uh, been used for. Let me um, begin to wind wind down a little bit and talk about a couple of other things that are important to me as I've as I've learned to grow in trust with my program and and learn. You know, really from deep in my bones to develop some serenity that I've heard you talk about. I, I had to get serenity initially when I came to Emory. I had a little plaque that said the serenity prayer and I read that a million times because I didn't have any serenity in me. I had to get it off the walls of my dorm room to make it work. But as I've grown in the program and, and I don't, I'm not proud that it, it's only happened in the last couple of years but for the first time in my life I do believe I'm beginning to get to a point of genuine serenity that I've not experienced before and I realize to continue to grow we have to continue to reach you know you know reach achievements in the program that we um haven't had before but the serenity thing is a new one uh, the you know the genuine serenity thing is a new one for me that I'm really really proud about I also want to want to talk about um anonymity for just a second because I, I do think it's important for me to remain anonymous at the level of radio films and tv but I am always Willing, and I try at every chance I get to share what I can about recovery because I've seen thousands and thousands of lives that have been touched because of my willingness to talk about what my family has experienced. And I wonder if I have not been willing to share those things, how many people might have never gotten to the program because of my unwillingness to talk about what it's done for me. So I'm not going to get on TV and talk about it because that's breaking the traditions. But I'm—I'll sit down on airplane seats, and I'm not an evangelist with it, but. Conversations can go any way the person you're talking with wants them to go, and I will find that often they'll go down the direction of what can I do to help an alcoholic, and um, I see that over and over again. That's one of those little miracles. I've learned to to believe that if I'm practicing the good program, I'll see a miracle every day in my life. Um, I had one yesterday when I saw that receipt for that alateen literature that my that was ordered out of my dad's office in 1961 because I'd been struggling with the timing on that and. God put it down in front of me through Barbara in a way that I w- it just absolutely blew me away. And as I and I hope that people in here who have a, a program either see that or will begin to see it. Those of you that are young haven't been around 40 years, and it's taken me 40 years to learn it, so I, I don't know how anybody gets in the program nowadays because it's taken me too long. Uh, in closing, let me. This is a book that if you haven't seen, it's a reprint of an old Alamon book. And, you know. For years, I think I've, I've had a feeling, and I felt kind of guilty about it, but A.A. and Al-Anon had kind of headed different directions, and that's another thing great about this meeting is A.A. and Al-Anon is all mixed together, and I'm really glad that y'all planned it that way, and that's another one of those circles that's been completed uh, for me. But in the original uh, Al-Anon literature, it was, it was clearer to me than it is with some of the things we have now, and I think that's why they've reprinted some of this old stuff, that we really are entangled More with the alcoholic and by doing things uh, to help others we help ourselves because often we hear I've got to be selfish and I've got to help myself and that's true but a lot of that is intertwined with helping others let me read a paragraph out of the Al-Anon family groups classic edition here and I'll close with that to help others is to help ourselves when when family group members help distraught relatives of alcoholics as only they can they themselves make great gains in emotional stability and spiritual progress They shed their own problems by becoming interested in the problems of others. I hope I can continue to shed my own problems by being interested in the problems of others, and I thank you very much for being here.